So I had a friend in college at Baylor. There's a lot of rich kids at Baylor. And uh, my friend lived uh, my sophomore year at Baylor with this uh, very wealthy guy whose dad built him this brand new, like amazing beach house in the middle of like a ghetto neighborhood right around Baylor. And, um, you know, dumped a bunch of money into this house, built it from scratch, beautiful home. And this guy had four other guys live with him, one of which was my friend. And um, my friend, as most, you know, 20-year-old college guys, was a bit of a slob. And um, he would not really care about uh, how clean his dorm room was when I knew him my freshman year. That just wasn't something that was on his radar at all. But when he moved into this new, amazing Waco, Texas beach house, I know it's weird. Um, he all of a sudden became like a hardcore clean freak. Uh, when you would put your legs on the coffee table, he's telling you to take your legs off the coffee table. When you would leave something, um, on a couch, he would ask you to pick it up. He became a a neat freak. He became a maniac about cleanliness and about order. And, you know, the reason for that is, I suppose, somewhat obvious. He understood the privilege of the situation that he found himself in. As a sophomore in college, he had the opportunity to live in this amazing brand new home for a dirt-free rental rate. And he had had this sort of remarkable lifestyle change because he felt this sense of responsibility because of the privilege he had been given. We can all understand that, right? It's pretty common that when a person sees the privileges and the advantages that have been afforded him or afforded her, it will increase that person's sense of responsibility, that person's sense of ownership, right? One of the amazing things about our story, this story that Jesus of Nazareth tells this morning, is that he inverts that idea, that paradigm. He flips it on its head and turns it upside down. And that's part of the reason why this parable, this story that Jesus tells to the religious leaders in Mark chapter 12 is so shocking and so interesting. Now, if we've been, we've been making our way through the gospel of Mark, and we saw last week that Jesus has finally entered into the city of Jerusalem. And it's one week from the time in which he's going to be crucified on a cross and put to death by the Jewish and the Roman authorities of the day. And we also saw last week that when he enters into Jerusalem and cleanses the temple and curses the fig tree, the height of conflict is raised, right? The tension is greater than it's ever been. He is, he is throwing down the gauntlet we saw last week, particularly with the religious authorities that want to resist him. And that continues today in Mark chapter 12. At the very end of chapter 11, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, had questioned the authority of Jesus. And we see that Jesus responded to them. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, Mark tells us that he began to speak to them in parables. So this story, this parable which is a clear allegory, one of the clearest parables in all of Jesus' ministry, is directed straight at the religious people, the conservative religious establishment of ancient Jerusalem, the people that opposed Jesus the most. And here's the main point that Jesus is making for those people and also for you and for me this morning. Here's the main idea. God's kindness and patience are intended to lead us to repentance. So listen to his warning. That's the main point. 
God's kindness and patience are intended to lead us to repentance. So listen to his warning. The Bible is full of many different forms of literature, of many different messages that are, in a sense, contributing to the one great message of the Bible. Sometimes it's full of promises, sometimes it comes in the form of, of a narrative, and sometimes it comes in the form of warnings. And frankly, this morning, what we have through this parable of the tenants is a warning from the Lord Jesus Christ to people well, really to people like you and to people like me. And so let me divide this story up into three parts for us. I want to show us the nature of God, the hardness of men, and the plan of God. Very simple. The nature of God, the hardness of men, the plan of God, okay? The, the heart of this parable turns on the contrast between the vine owner, the man who owns, or the vineyard owner, the man who owns this land, and the tenants whom he has allowed to live on the land and produce um, grapes and wine for him as they work on his vineyard. The vineyard owner, this might be obvious to you, is representative of God, and the tenants are representative of Israel. And so let's see first what we learn through this story that Jesus tells about the nature of God, remembering that the main point is that God's kindness and patience are intended to lead us to repentance. So first, the nature of God. We learn here about God's kindness, and we learn about God's patience. When when Jesus begins the parable, if you'll look in the story with me in verse 1, he's talking, obviously, there about a vineyard. Now, that's very important, especially because for an ancient Jewish person, for the sort of person that Jesus was speaking to, that idea or image of a vineyard would have drawn up very specific images in their mind. And the reason for that is because in the Old Testament, in Israel's ancient scripture, the people of God, the nation of Israel, are very regularly compared to a vineyard. One of the most famous of those stories is in the prophet Isaiah's fifth chapter. In Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, he has this extended metaphor where he refers to Israel as a vineyard that has been planted by God. And it's very explicit there in Isaiah. So when Jesus uses the vineyard image here, in the religious people of his day's minds, this sort of Old Testament background would have immediately arisen. Now, what do you think of when you think of a vineyard? That's kind of a dangerous question, I guess, to ask, depending on your church background. But what you probably think of, and I think what you should think of, is the idea of blessing. In the Bible, vineyards are always associated with good land, right? With, with blessing, with happiness. I mean, the Psalms say that wine makes glad the hearts of men, after all. I, mean, I remember the first time, the only time, I visited Northern California and spent a day in the Napa Valley, you know, the, the heart of California wine country. And I was leaving that morning Tucson, Arizona, which is in the middle of the desert, and uh, the contrast between Tucson, where nothing lives except things that want to hurt you because of their needles and their pricking, you know, nothing lives except thorn things in the middle of the desert. Uh, and then by the afternoon, I was in the Napa Valley driving down the main road with my brothers and just being amazed. I mean, three guys from the middle of West Texas who are used to seeing like oil rigs on the highway are in the middle of one of the most beautiful parts of the country. I mean, it was clear that that this is just an immaculately gorgeous place. You can't help but be struck 
by the natural beauty of a place that's just sort of covered with vineyards, with just beautiful, fertile land. So the big idea then is the fact that Jesus makes use of vineyard imagery. Here in the beginning of the story suggests for us that God, who again is pictured here as the owner of this vineyard, God has been exceedingly kind to his people, Israel. Um, We also see the kindness of God in how he, uh, the man here takes care of and protects the vineyard. You'll you'll look in the text again, you'll see that the man planted this vineyard and then he puts a fence around it and he digs a pit for the wine press so that the vineyard could be productive. And he built a tower to protect it, I guess, from foxes or wolves. And And the wine press is there so the grapes could be smashed and put to good use. The point is that the landlord has provided in every way for the tenants by giving them this well-cared-for, this productive vineyard. The landlord has been kind. We see the kindness of God portrayed in the story. We also see the patience of God. That's another part of his nature that comes out here, right? We see his patience in very obvious ways. In verse 3, when the first servant is sent, which would have been a normal thing for a servant of the master to go and take some of the produce of his vineyard, which he is leasing out to these tenants, he's sent to the tenants to get a portion, and he returns, you know, battered and bruised. He's gotten a good, solid beatdown, right, by these tenants. And if you were the landowner, and if I was the landowner at that point, um, what would your reaction have been? I mean, I would have gone Tarantino on those people, like immediately, right? I mean, you've got to be thinking, what what in the world do these people think they're doing? They're drinking my wine. They're on my land. They're using my wine press. They're protected behind my fence. And I go to take a portion of what is rightfully mine, and they repay my kindness to them by beating up my servant? That's not what the landowner does. In fact, the landowner sends more people. And we read that they continue to treat his people terribly. God sends servant after servant. And we see in verse 5, many, many others. And they continue to do the same thing. They beat up some of the servants. They even kill some of the servants. But the patience of the landowner is brought into the foreground as the story progresses. You know, eventually God sends His son, the landowner sends his son to these wicked tenants there in verse 6. And now think about this, right? At this point in the parable, um, the limits of logic are being strained. I mean, no rational person is going to send his son based on past performance, right? Past performance is the best indicator of future results. Well, the landowner doesn't think in those terms. He continues to send his son, straining the limits of logic because Jesus wants us to understand in the extremity of this parable the radical nature of the patience of God the Father. The radical nature and extreme character of God's kindness and long-suffering with people. Jesus wants us to see that that is what the real God is like. That is how much God loves us. That is how patiently he waits for us to turn back to him. He even sent his own son to turn us back from the way of destruction and wickedness and foolishness. That's why the apostle Peter, in another part of the New Testament, says this, God is long-suffering with you 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we see the the nature of God in this story. He's kind. He's patient. Now, secondly, let's contrast that, okay? Let's contrast that with the hardness of men. Remember, the, the power of the parable lies in this contrast between the patience of the landowner and the brutality of the tenants. Now, again, remember that the religious authorities of the day in ancient Israel are the people that are in view here for Jesus Christ. Remember the fig tree from last week. God's people were, they were outwardly very spiritual and religious. They were like a tree full of leaves, but inwardly they were decaying. They're full of hate and pride and evil. They're hard-hearted. And this hard-heartedness is obvious in this parable that Jesus tells, right? These, these tenants beat up and kill servant after servant, as we have seen. But if you understand this story in the broader sort of redemptive context of all of the Bible, you can see that these servants in some ways represent God's ancient prophets who have been sent by God to speak in God's behalf to people, to call them to repentance, to come back to God, to place their faith in him and to trust that he will forgive him. And what has happened throughout the history of Israel to God's prophets is that they have been treated shamefully, just like the servants that the landowner sent were treated shamefully by the tenants of the vineyard. Jeremiah, one of the most famous of the prophets in the Old Testament, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard of Jeremiah before. He was a prophet that was rejected by kings and by false prophets and by the people. At one point in his prophecy, he says, Woe is me and my mother that she bore me. I am a man of strife and contention to the whole land. All of them curse me. He experienced what the servants in this parable experienced. Elijah is another famous Old Testament prophet. And there's a famous story in 1 Kings chapter 19 where Elijah is running from the evil queen Jezebel and he cries out to God in anguish saying, basically, I'm all alone here. I'm the only one on your side, God. What is going on? Everyone is against me. Ezekiel, another famous prophet in the Old Testament, had God say this to him during his ministry, the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you. How's that for a call to ministry? Go preach. Oh, and by the way, no one's going to listen. So just get ready. They are not willing to listen. They're not going to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me, God says, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. So the people Jesus is speaking to in this parable are the last in a long line of tenants, so to speak, who have mistreated and beaten and even killed the landlord's servants. The hardness of men is on display. And it's obviously particularly on display here in in the killing of the son, which is, you know, the last straw, right? We see that in verses seven and eight. A couple of things I want to show you about it. Notice that it is premeditated. You see that there in verse seven? The tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So what they do to the son, it's not like a matter of impulsiveness. It's not like they get a a rage issue in the heat of the moment and kill this son. No, they do it in a premeditated way, thinking maliciously as a result of their own deliberation and their own scheming. And I also want you to see how stupid, (laughs) forgive me for using that word, but it is. How foolish, how dumb their action and their thinking is here. 
I mean, look at what they say in verse 7. Let's kill the son, and the inheritance will be ours. What in the world? I mean, think about that. Think about the logic that they're using here and how crazy that sounds. How is that going to work? You know, as if the father isn't eventually going to come himself and avenge, right? They are mistaking the patience of the landowner with ignorance, you see. And at this point, the landowner obviously is going to come himself, and that's exactly what Jesus tells us next. He comes in fury, and he destroys the tenants, and he gives the vineyard to others. Okay, stick with me. Let's pause for a second. A couple of things we need to think about. A couple of things you need to think about for your own life here. First, I want you to just consider for a second, again, the foolishness of sin. Um, it, it, in a sense, it literally makes us crazy. It turns our thinking upside down. It makes us irrational. Uh, in the sense that, you know, we think that there are no consequences for behavior that we know deep down is wrong. You don't have to be a Christian to see this, by the way. All of us, by nature, have a moral compass. And yet, how often do we act irrationally, right? We, we do things that we know are stupid and wrong and just ignore the fact that consequences eventually are going to hit. You know, you folks that are physicians or in the medical field, I often hear from you, especially if you, you know, regularly see just average patients, but the vast majority of the patients you see, the issues they're facing are things that could easily be remedied if they would just sort of eat a little bit healthier or exercise regularly. And so the large majority of what you're doing during your day is saying, listen, you've got to just, you know, walk. How about you just walk for 30 minutes a day or something like that? Or how about you don't eat at McDonald's quite as often? And, and, and the people that you're seeing, oftentimes they might change, which is great, but very regularly, They'll say, that sounds good, but Twinkies. <laughs> that sounds good, but Big Macs, they're so yummy. It's just irrational. And, and we know that, and not to poke fun at you if you love Big Macs. I like a Big Mac every now and then. Those things are addictive, by the way. I mean, sometimes you drive by McDonald's and you see those arches, and you're like, I've got to have McDonald's. Like, what is going on? There's some sort of spiritual temptation going on there. That was not in my notes. Sorry. Just went off notes. Um, the point is that we're often like that spiritually as well, right? We're, we're the same when it comes to our spiritual lives. We irrationally act, and it creates this vicious cycle in our lives that makes us less and less sensical as we engage in these practices more and more. And listen, here's another thing we've got to think about here for a second as we think about what Jesus is teaching through this story. And, and it regards not necessarily just what we are like, but also what God is like. I mean, we've already talked about that a little bit. And, and let me just be honest with you. This is a hard truth, okay? It's a hard, a hard thing to swallow, no matter where you stand in your spiritual journey. But it's, it is a truth that the Bible regularly touches on. And, and here's what the truth is. God is kind and patient. Okay, listen. God is kind and patient with each one of us, but his patience is not going to last forever. God is kind and long-suffering, but his kindness and long-suffering are not unlimited. You see, God's patience with us is intended to lead us to change. It's intended to lead us to repentance. It's intended to not enable us to continue in these self-destructive, rebellious habits and behaviors. 
And so the question, listen, the question is, can you and I heed the warning that is there in this story, in this parable? The apostle Paul says in Romans chapter two, do do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. Listen, Jesus, and this is hard, but Jesus is calling each one of us to make good use of God the Father's kindness and patience by seeking his forgiveness, by repenting, by not continuing to ignore his good kingly authority and rule over each of our lives. So where are you, you know? It's a fair question to ask yourself. Where are you in that process today? Are you in a place where you can sense Jesus Christ, maybe even right now, calling you to repent of some behavior or some habit or some activity in your life that you know is destructive, that you know deep down is wrong, that you know deep down is not leading to your flourishing or to the flourishing of your relationships, but it's actually leading to all sorts of really bad things. Can you sense Jesus calling you to turn from those things, to repent, to look to him, to provide all of the things that you need for a life of obedience? Can you sense Jesus speaking to you through this story right now and asking you to believe that he is for you in the gospel, but the gospel requires that you repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you can sense that and if you can act upon that by the Holy Spirit's help, then his kindness and his mercy will be your salvation. Remember, he's not talking here to irreligious, quote, pagans. He's talking here to the religious people, the conservative people, the church-going folk. To be honest, people that are legion in a place like San Antonio. And he's saying, don't hide behind your religiosity like the ancient Israelites did. Don't think that just because you've been blessed enough to live in the vineyard that you can continue to act however you want and not to think that the landlord eventually is going to show up and call you to account. See, Christianity, in a sense, has a message of urgency for each one of us. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, God is kind. Yes, God is super abundant in his love for you. But all of that gracious and kindness and love is intended to lead you to a moment where you're willing to lay down the things that are hindering you from being the person that God has called you to be. That's the point of the parable you see. It's the point of this contrast between the, the nature of God and the hardness of men. Now, real quick, okay, thirdly, the kindness, or sorry, the plan of God. We need to look briefly at how Jesus ends the story. This is the punchline, right, so to speak. He quotes from probably the most popular psalm for the writers of the New Testament. The New Testament writers quote this psalm all the time. It's Psalm 118. And he quotes a couple of verses here at the very end. And additionally, it seems sort of like a non sequitur. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But what Jesus is saying here, and this is really the most amazing thing about this pretty straightforward parable. What Jesus is saying is that this behavior of Israel, this behavior of the ancient people of God, this behavior of the religious establishment of the day who rejected and killed God's prophets and servants and who eventually reject and kill God's son, Jesus himself, all of that behavior was a part of God's plan all along. 
That's what the psalm is getting at. When Jesus says there, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's actually a very ironic statement. Because initially, a thousand years before Jesus tells this parable, this story, what the, the builders or the they refer in the original telling of Psalm 118, they refer to the leaders of the nations, and the stone is Israel. So originally this psalm is about the people of God, Israel being rejected by the nations. But Jesus now uses it to say that really what this psalm ultimately is about is about Israel themselves rejecting me, the one whom they of all people should have seen and believed in and understood. The builders now are Israel and the stone is Jesus himself. And what Jesus is saying here is that in his rejection by God's people, in his death, God's plan has not been altered somehow. God's plan has not failed. In fact, that is exactly what God intended from before the foundation of the world. In the rejection of Jesus, you see, in the betrayal of Jesus, in the crucifixion of Jesus, we see that God uses that to bring about the acceptance of the nations, the reconciliation of the world, the salvation of everyone who will put trust in his name. As the psalm says, this was all the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes, Jesus says. And so rather than just being this great tragedy, the death of Jesus is amazingly and sovereignly used by God. The death of Jesus is used by God to bring restoration, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. Because the death of Jesus is the place where God shows his judgment. The judgment that we see explicit here in this story. He shows his judgment, but not towards those who deserve it. But rather towards the son, the son himself. You see, in the death of Jesus, we are offered new life. In the rejection of Jesus, we are offered acceptance forever. In the violence done to Jesus, we are offered peace. So to sum it up, okay, God sent his only son, Jesus, to save the world, and his own people rejected him. But even in this rejection, God is at work. And even in that rejection, he's at work offering the gospel of Jesus's death and resurrection to all who will come to Christ in faith and repentance in faith that in the death of Jesus, the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion is done away with and paid for. And that in the resurrection of Jesus, we have the opportunity for new life everlasting, despite our past misdeeds and failures. Again, the Bible here is very clearly calling us. It's warning us out of our, out of our spiritual stupor and slumber. And that in itself is an act of grace, you see. Let me close with this story. I might have told this before, but a pastor friend of mine um, uses an illustration where he went swimming once with a friend down on the coast of Australia. He was on a trip in Australia, and they're by this amazing reef, you know, and, and uh, he was going to take a swim. But right when he was about to jump in the water, he sees this huge sign with a picture of, you know, a shark, a shark fin sticking up out of the water. And it says something, you know, like, warning, don't swim or the likelihood of you losing a limb is significantly increased, right? 
Don't get in the water. It's shark-infested waters. And his friend just jumps in the water anyway, you know, sort of like you might do in your foolishness of your youth. He he jumps right in and says, that sign doesn't matter. Come on. Don't, Don't let that sign spoil our fun. And the friend ended up looking at him for a second and saying, listen, that sign is, you know, it's, it's not there to spoil our fun. It's not there to ruin our day. It's a loving warning to protect us from future pain and harm. Now, that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this story. He is lovingly warning each of us about our sin problem while there is still time to do something about it. And so you can choose even today to do something and to listen to him or you can take no notice and jump in the shark-infested water, so to speak. But if you choose to ignore him, Jesus says clearly, there will be consequences that are not good for you. So will you choose to listen? His kindness and his patience and his love and his mercy are abundantly available for you now. Don't wait. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ in faith. Let's pray.